2: Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street. And this is episode 138 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Joyce Tischler, Executive Director of the Animal Legal Defense Fund, about how to start a legal nonprofit.
1: Today's podcast is sponsored by Clio Legal Practice Management Software. Clio makes running your law firm easier. Try it for free
2: today at Clio.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ruby Receptionists, and it's smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. So, Sam, last week uh, we spoke with Ricky Hansen about what to do if you want a career change, including a few minutes about how to think about how to save the world as part of your career change. Um, Or what to do with those feelings, at least. (laughs) Yeah, and and so this week we're kind of riffing off of that, and you're going to talk with Joyce about how to start a successful legal nonprofit. And you and I both have friends through TBD and the rest of the small firm legal community who've found ways to try to solve similar access to justice legal problems with similar client pricing models, but in both for-profit and non-profit firm settings. And so I thought it'd be interesting to kind of as we preview the discussion you're about to have with Joyce, talk about for a minute how to think through the distinction between solving these problems in for-profit versus non-profit formats.
1: Yeah, so specifically Chantel Argyle, who's been on the podcast, has a legal nonprofit out in Utah, and Emily Cooper, uh, who hasn't been on the podcast, but um, has been... Yeah, she'll be eventually. She has a for-profit law firm here in Minnesota, and they both use almost the identical sliding scale. I think it actually is identical or close enough that it bottoms out at 75 bucks an hour to represent their clients. And a lot of family law, some other stuff, um, Chantel has a bit of a wider client base. Point being, Emily is... Her goal for this year is, I think, like a million bucks in gross revenue, and Chantel is... A nonprofit. And they're not starving, but they're definitely not, you know, going after that same sort of successful business model.
2: Well, um, they're going after a successful business model. They're just not going after profit. Yeah, yeah.
1: right. But but that comes along with lower wages for everyone who yep. works there. And so I think it, it's interesting to me that they're both doing essentially the same type of good in the world with very, very different business models around it. And I I guess that part of me is like, I I really don't think that you have to think about access to justice as, you know, sort of nonprofit
2: charity work. Right. At the same time, I think what Chantel is doing, and what we're going to hear from Joyce, like the role of nonprofits in providing legal assistance is super important. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting that I think most people jump to the conclusion that kind of If pro bono, public interest, access to justice issues are the things that they either are passionate about or want to pursue, that nonprofits are the path there. And I think it's interesting that there are models both ways, all of which are successful. They are both meeting the needs that they're striving to and are able to grow and sustain themselves according to their goals. But I like that we don't have to start from the premise of nonprofit. That said... If you're going to start a legal nonprofit, I think your discussion with Joyce today is a really great primer on how to think through doing it successfully.
1: Yeah. Uh, she says a lot of things that I wish nonprofits who had started that I've been involved with had known from the beginning. It's really some valuable advice. ALDF has grown a lot, and you'll hear more about that. We don't talk a lot about what the Animal Legal Defense Fund does, but if you kind of know and if you're sympathetic to the mission and you're interested, if you want to attend the Animal Law Conference in October, you can tweet at Con with the hashtag Lawyerist Podcast, and you'll get a chance to win one of two free tickets. So with that said, now here's my conversation with Joyce.
0: My name is Joyce Tischler. I'm a California attorney and I'm the founder and general counsel of the Animal Legal Defense Fund. Hi,
1: Joyce. Thanks for being with us today. So, tell us what does the, besides defending animals, how does the Animal Legal Defense Fund go about doing that? Tell us what does the organization look like today?
0: Today the organization has about 45 employees. We're based in California and in Portland, Oregon, and some of our employees are long distance, remote, uh working out of their homes in Texas, uh, Wisconsin, New Jersey, New York and other places. Um, We also have a volunteer pro bono network of attorneys, and that's about 2,000 attorneys throughout the United States, including some of the biggest firms in the U.S. And These attorneys handle cases for us um, and do a variety of uh, research projects for us on a pro bono basis. We have a supporter base of around 200,000 people in the U.S. These are not necessarily lawyers. In fact, Mm -hmm. most are not. And uh, we're a national organization. We have a few basic programs. The first one is litigation, where we uh, bring civil suits and challenge institutional abuse of animals. Um, And then our criminal justice program, in which we assist prosecutors of cruelty cases throughout the U.S. We have an animal law program uh which focuses on introducing classes to law schools and helping student animal legal defense fund chapters start and we're we're pretty much in most law schools in the US today certainly every ABA accredited law school has either an animal law class or a student group wow. and then we have some minor legislative work and a few other things going on. Uh, we we offer a fellowship program for people uh, graduating law school who who are uh, who would like to learn how to litigate animal law cases. So we've got our fingers in a lot of pots. Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> That's very cool stuff. So when did you start ALDF?
0: I started the group with another lawyer, Larry Kisnick, out here in San Francisco in 1979. And was it
1: just the two of you?
0: At first, yes. Yeah, it was just the two of us. And it may seem like a no-brainer now, but at that point, it was an unusual thing to do. And with me, what led me to that was I always loved animals from a very early age. I was, I, We had dogs always. Um, as soon as I could walk around the block, I was bringing home cats I thought were lost, hmm. uh, probably stealing people's cats and didn't know it, bringing home injured birds. It was always there, that special connection. And I'm one of those children of the 60s um, and a lot of nonprofits were formed coming out of the 1960s. For me, I became involved as an activist in 1968 when I was 15 years old and just stayed involved, getting going from one movement to another, civil rights, anti-Vietnam War, peace movement, feminism, prisoners' rights. But I always came back to the animals. And so it was connecting those two dots, the social activism and the love of animals. That's, that's what took some time. There was no legal group focused on protecting animals. There was nothing called animal law. No classes, nothing really. And, but coming out of the 60s and reading a book called Animal Liberation by philosopher Peter Singer, um, I put the two together and thought this is the work I want to do. I'd been out of law school a couple of years. I was working at a firm. The work they were doing was, you know, perfectly honorable. I just wasn't interested in it. And I knew I knew going into law school that I wasn't a big corporate lawyer or a big big firm lawyer. Um, I had this activism. I was going to, I was headed towards a nonprofit. It was just a matter of which one and I ended up forming my own as an activist that came easily to me. We started the two of us, Larry and me, um thinking, well, if there's two of us, maybe there are more. So we put an ad in our local legal newspaper and six more people showed up and that was our core group mm-hmm. and we spent a few years teaching ourselves about the laws relating to animals both both nationally and in our state, the problems And at some point, people started coming to us wanting us to represent
1: Uh, them. Was there much litigation around animal law at the time? Um, I, I guess I'm just kind of wondering, like, how did the idea that there might be enough work here for a nonprofit to do get into your head?
0: You know, we didn't really approach from, is there enough work to do? We, we assumed there was. There was very little litigation being done, and it was very spotty. Um, there were animal protection groups, such as the Fund for Animals. And if they saw something that they wanted to litigate, they would they would hire some local attorney who knew nothing about how to protect animals, but just was willing mm-hmm. to work for them on for free for pro bono. So what we wanted to do was develop a specialty, develop an ability to understand the various laws that relate to animals and to specialize in that and then to do a really fine job. Back in 1979, we all had jobs. Um, In 1981, one of those tipping points came when – We heard about a situation in China Lake, California, which is the middle of the Mojave Desert, in which the U.S. Navy had a problem with donkeys, burrows coming onto the airstrip. And so their solution was they were going to um, kill 5,000 of them. And that seemed like an overreaction to me. I went into court. I pulled an all-nighter, went into court, and got a TRO. And as a result of that, we got a seed grant. From uh, a group called Animal Protection Institute, it was six thousand dollars, but it was all I needed to leave the firm and start doing this work. So up till then,
1: you'd been doing it for free.
0: Yeah, yeah, completely gotcha. pro bono in, in my, you know, weekends and evenings. And really, you can't practice law on your weekends <laughs> and evenings. That's, that's not a way to do it properly. Yeah. And the seed grant got us going. And, you know, a lot of people who've accomplished things have not known at the start that it would be as hard as it is, which is a good no. thing because maybe they wouldn't have done it. And I'm one of those people. Once we got the seed grant, I started doing the work full time, but the work included litigating, being the administrator, trying to build a board, uh, trying to get us financially solid and do fundraising, I couldn't do it all at mm-hmm. once. Uh, I didn't realize it for a while, so I was beating myself up. And what I learned is that administering a nonprofit corporation, we incorporated, we formed a nonprofit corporation, but administering a nonprofit is very similar to administering a for-profit. The money comes in different ways, but you have to have sound fiscal management of a nonprofit. You don't get a free pass. You're running a business. So I had to learn on the job a whole lot of things that they don't teach you in law school. I've joked that I wish I had an MBA in addition to a JD, but uh, I had to learn how to develop the board um, and how to bring people on who could benefit the corporation. I had to learn to be an administrator, hire people, fire people, coach them if they weren't doing well. I had to learn to fundraise, which um is a terrifying thing for most people, but there's a lot of help out there. Um, and if you're passionate about what you do, you get over the tin cup mentality of, oh dear, I'm, you know, I'm begging for money. You, you realize that you have something valuable for people to invest in. You've got the time, they've got the money, yeah. and if you can come together, you can create some beautiful music.
1: How, where does your money come um, from now? Is it more from those 200,000 supporters, or are you still relying on foundations yes. or a combination?
0: What has developed over the years is that if the first 10 years were really rough and we were bringing in money bits at a yeah, time and, and, you know, for the first few years we never had more than two months income at any given time, which was scary and difficult. And so we started, we, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth and I didn't have money backing me up, so none of us did. My entire board was, was young lawyers. Hmm. So we looked into how could we bring in money. Um, we tried some grant writing to some of the bigger animal protection groups and they weren't interested in supporting us because we didn't, they would rather bring us on staff. Oh. And finally, we, we did something called direct marketing which is those those letters and phone calls, the telemarketing, the stuff you get via email today, which didn't exist then. Back then, it was, it was mainly letters to people in the mail, junk mail. And um, if people would respond, then they would become our members and we would build from there. And once we got a stable source of income from doing direct mail, then we began other forms of fundraising and fundraising is, is, there's a certain amount of art, but there's a lot of science to it. Um, it's not magical. You, when people show that they can give more money, you start to meet with them. You call them on the phone. You meet with them at their homes or at restaurants. Those people become what are called major donors. Right. You tell people through your newsletter to please donate to the organization in their will. And that's a very, Inexpensive, simple way to get people to put an organization, you know, a 501c3 nonprofit into their will. And at first there were just trickles of money and now it's a significant part of our income, which is interesting once you've been doing this for 20, 30 years. People have left you in their wills and, um, and it's a significant source of income. Hmm. Today we also go to foundations. Um, again, back in the early eighties, there were not many foundations giving to animal protection. Today there are many more. So we've diversified our sources of income and, you know, our first annual budget was $12,000 and today we're, we're Around eight million, wow, so we've grown,
1: yeah, no kidding. Um, and I, I'm wondering <laughs> how how much of your time were you able to spend on actual you know legal advocacy versus fundraising and things? because I, I think that's a concern that a lot of people have when it comes to being starting a nonprofit is, will I actually be able to do it or, Am I just going to be asking for money all the time?
0: It's it's both. Uh, <laughs> yes, we'll be asking for money all the time. Get used to it. If I had it to do over again, I would do it differently. I would build a pot of money so that we had operating funds for a couple of years, um, and that wouldn't have been all that much money back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And then I would have hired someone else to do the fundraising. Uh, for me, success has been every time I can give away a piece of my job to someone else, then I know I'm doing well, and uh,
1: and and I did that over time. Which looks a lot like a for-profit business. I mean, it. You're, it is. It's the same thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's very much like a for-profit. Um, you need to plan. You need to get into strategic planning. You need to focus on some things, and say no to other things when you're getting when your focus is getting too wide. And you need to um, meet the legal requirements with the Internal Revenue Service. There are annual filings with the IRS. Um, you need to meet the, uh, reporting requirements with the state attorney general, secretary of state. You need to have board meetings with minutes. I mean, all of this, as I said earlier, is part of running a business and you need to attend to those details. And so there came a point, frankly, where I had to choose other people. I was able to hire other people and I had to choose between litigating and being the administrator. Mm-hmm. And I felt that I had, um, the skills to be an administrator. And so I went in that direction and and hired other people to do the litigation. And today, you know, we've got litigators, we've got communications people, we've got development department. Uh, we've got IT and operations. So we've, you know, we've now got experts doing the things that little old Joyce was doing back in 1979, and not very well was all over the
1: place. <laughs> well, I need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about that growth and how you managed it over the years. So we'll hear from our sponsors for just a moment, and then we'll be right back.
2: Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. You could invest in marketing your firm, you could spend more time helping clients in need, or you could catch your daughter's soccer game. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With Clio, tracking time, billing, and matter management are fast and easy, giving you more time to focus on what really matters. And Clio is a complete practice management platform with plenty of tools and over 50 integrations to help you automate daily tasks such as document generation and court calendaring. See how the right software can make it easier to manage your practice. Try Clio for free today at Clio.com. This podcast is supported by Ruby receptionists. As
1: a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone. Which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. And we're back. And so, Joyce, I'm curious about how the organization has grown, how how you helped it grow, and and how you're thinking about that has changed over the years. Did it feel like there was just sort of a groundswell of support that that kept growing? Or did you really have a vision for how you wanted the organization to grow and go about it strategically?
0: I always felt that I wanted the organization to be lean and mean. um, And I had certain models that I looked to. Uh, of, of nonprofit organizations that I thought were, were operating in a way that I liked. Uh, I never wanted us to get too big because I thought we – I'd seen organizations that get so large that they, they're appealing to the mainstream and they lose their core message. Mm. Um, and that's not something I wanted us to do. So – I did have role models um all of the way for, for a variety of things. Uh, for example, in the early days, there was a group that's now called Earth Justice. Back then, it was called Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund. And they were nearby, and their executive director was very kind to me, he would take me out to lunch, and we'd talk about how things are running. We'd talk about how to select litigation, um, and we put together a committee of litigators to to oversee litigation that I wanted to bring because... For those who are litigators, you get very involved emotionally very quickly. And I needed to be able to have a group that would step back and look at it objectively. And we grew over time. You know, there's been a lot of experimentation that's gone on. And I'll give you an example. In the early days, people would call and they'd say, my next door neighbor has, you know, has put his dog in the backyard. The dog has no coverage, no shade. Um, all he gets is food and water. And he barks the whole day long. What can I do about that? I've called the Humane Society. I've called the police. Mm-hmm. No one will do anything. And that person might be in Minneapolis or Paducah, Iowa or you know, or someplace in North Carolina. And we were a tiny group sitting in California. There was nothing I could do. It was very frustrating. But out of the frustration came an idea, and the idea was if prosecutors – Can prosecute such a case or are willing to prosecute such a case, we as lawyers can help them in the background quietly. We can do legal research for them. We can find sentencing options and charging options and expert witnesses on whether a turtle feels pain or whether an opossum feels pain or, or whether that cat died of starvation or, um, you know, or or disease. So with that that kernel of an idea, we started what is now a major program Hmm. and. It's, and as I said, it's been experimental. Some programs we started, and then we said, you know what? This is mission drift. We need to just let go of that. Let somebody else do that. It's a good idea, but it's not. It's not something we ought to do. So
1: you have a pretty and clear have, vision that you that you measure your strategies and your projects and things against.
0: Yes, that's correct. We do. We we haven't always had that clear vision, but we have developed it over time. We got involved in strategic planning, I think, for the first time in 2000 which I'm a firm believer in strategic planning. Because at that time, someone commented that we were a mile wide and an inch deep. And that's not a compliment. You can't be all over the place. You can't focus effectively on every, you know, for us, it's every animal problem. Uh But for any business, you have to, you get more of what you focus on. So you better focus on stuff yeah. and do it well. And for us, it meant Saying goodbye to certain programs that just weren't working for us and, and focusing on other programs where we thought, okay, if we focus on this, we could really make some progress. We can dig deeper. And, and that's what we've done over the years. We do it every three years. It has, it has helped us to grow in so many ways, particularly financially. One of those strategic planning times was where we, where we said, okay, we're doing good work, but we're not big, we're not bringing in enough money. And that's holding us back. So how are we going to focus on, on, on strategically bringing in more money? And we and we did, and and it and it worked. It was it was an interesting transition. That's when we really doubled our our, our budget from about four thousand to eight thousand.
1: How do you commit to spend money on strategic planning, time and money on strategic planning, when you're strapped for one or both?
0: We have always had to make choices about where we spend our time and our money and um, strategic planning works for us, and so we do it. We have to. If, if we don't do it, we're going to get lost and we are going to experience more mission drift. And you can see that if you look at, I mean, if you're looking closely um, at certain nonprofits, you can see that over time, they're just not doing, they're not as sharp as they used to be. Mm-hmm. They're not as focused. They're, their message is not as clear as it used to be. Um, so we've always somehow found a way to find the money to do what we wanted to do. Way back when, uh, people started leaving us stock or giving us stock. Hmm. And uh, instead of using it for then current budget needs, we just socked it away and socked it away. And by doing that, over about a 10-year period, we built a really nice Investment fund for ourselves. It's, that's our nest egg. Very cool. So that was another way to to plan ahead.
1: While you were talking with other organizations, um, and my sister worked for Earth Justice up in Southeast Alaska, so that resonates with me. But uh-huh. um, but while you were talking with other organizations, I I was reflecting on my own experience um, with nonprofits, and it it often feels and and maybe this is even more acute in the legal world where there it's a smaller world and there are plenty of nonprofits. It often feels like there's a real territorialness going on, um yes. both for um funding you know, defending my turf yes. for funding reasons or whatever. Like how do you how do you deal with that? And is it you just become the biggest badass and you blow everybody else out of the water? Or do you build connections? <laughs> I mean, what how do you approach that and how do you try and I feel like I want it to be less?
0: <laughs> yes. Um Personally, I just accept that it is what it is and and if we all just accept that and also realize that there's not a finite amount of money out there. and One mm-hmm. can build new sources of income and um, sometimes we are riding the coattails of the larger organizations. Um, direct mail, direct marketing is um, – it's not that it's complex, but there's a real system built in. Of what lists you go to and who you purchase or rent lists from, and I don't know if you want to get into all that. It's <laughs> it's, its own cottage industry, right. And by by using that, we've been able, we were able to build our list. We were able to be strategic. I realize I'm using the word strategic, That's all right. but we That's were all right. able to be strategic about that, and to be business like about doing fundraising. And and one of the things I learned was that it's not finite. If you build your nest you may also be building someone else's and I think we all realize that to some extent. Yes there is competition, yes there is a lack of trust. That just is what is in the nonprofit field. We're always looking for ways to partner with other groups. And and we do partner with many other groups. Um and and what that brings us is they may have knowledge on a topic that we're not as knowledgeable about, especially as lawyers. We need to have people specialize on, on you know what is a factory farm and what are the practices that are going on there or what's happening in research labs. So we can't be the experts on everything, so, so partnership is our MO. We, we do it all the time.
1: So you consciously seek out higher ground and try to support rather than, than contend with others? Yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, because there's enough to go around for everybody. And uh, those partnerships have been very valuable to us over the years and will continue to be. And, you know, one of the things that's happening now in our field is that we're finding common ground with environmentalists over the issue of factory farming. Um, And so we are creating partnerships there and creating a bigger tent for everybody. Yeah.
1: You know, it feels like the current environment, maybe it's not quite the 60s, but um, but I know a lot of people, okay. lawyers included, are starting to feel like, um, what am I doing with my life? I need to go and, um, you know, help people, um, you know, they're whatever, whatever yeah. kinds of people or whatever yeah. issues you care great, deeply about. You know, I, I know because I hear from a lot of lawyers that they want to go start a mission driven nonprofit to, to make change as, as someone who's who's done that, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a while ago now and had a lot of experiences and, and success over the years, um, what advice would you give to somebody in 2017 who feels compelled to do something like that?
0: Okay. Yes. Follow your passion. Live the life you were meant to live is my first piece of advice. And you will be a happy person. You won't be the richest person around, but you'll be a very happy lawyer. Um, there's so much information and advice uh, and, and so many resources out there, uh, from Nolo Press about how to start a nonprofit, uh, how to manage a nonprofit, how to fundraise for a nonprofit. Just go online. You'll, Nolo Press is one book, uh, mm-hmm. publisher, but there are many others and there's so much information on the internet. Board development. You'll need to focus on board development and understand, um, what what is a beginning board what's a middle range board and what's a very sophisticated institutional board hmm. uh there's a group called board source and they have a variety of materials again aimed at helping nonprofits uh make the most out of their boards and and be successful hr is another whole you know each of these these buckets has to be filled with knowledge and you need to understand what it is to to be an administrator and again there are many, many books on the shelves about how to be an administrator, how to be a one-minute manager is the name of one, um, how to draw on the people who who are interested in what you're doing. Um, there's a lot on fundraising. There's a, a group called the Associ- Association of Fundraising Professionals. And early on, I found this group. And they were wonderful. They, I, I had an individual mentor. I would go to their conferences. I learned so much from these folks. They were very. It, it was different from uh, from what you described before of the competitiveness in the nonprofit world. These people were happy to share their knowledge, and it was just delightful, uh, and still is to to be around these fundraising professionals. So there there is a lot that you will need to learn. You can learn it all. It, don't try to learn it all at once uh, all right. <laughs> because that will overwhelm you. But over time, you can. If you're particularly interested in animal law, check out our website algf.org. There are. If if you're interested in working for a group, we have a lot of um, openings. That are that are listed on our website. And if you want to get to know the people in the animal law movement, come to our conference. It's in Portland, October 13th to 15th. And it's um, at www.animallawconference.org for more information. So there are so many ways to get into the vein of the nonprofit world that, that you're passionate about. Conferences, online resources, books, mentors. It's doable.
1: Very cool. Um, And speaking of your conference, your organization is offering two free tickets to the Animal Law Conference. And so listeners can tweet at... Animal Law Con, that's the Twitter handle, um, using the hashtag lawyers podcast, saying why they would like to attend and they'll pick two winners. If you're listening to this close in time, go ahead and do that. And you might be a lucky recipient. Joyce, I'd like to ask you one last question by way of closing. And that's what do you know now about starting a legal nonprofit that you wish you knew 25 years ago? (sighs) Boy,
2: (laughs) (laughs) you
0: know, it's I have I've alluded to that earlier. If if I knew how hard it was going to be, I probably wouldn't have done it. So I'm glad I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad that I was able to learn on the job slowly, painfully at times. But I wish, uh, I wish I knew I was going to be a success. Maybe I wouldn't have had so many nights where I was waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Do you wish you had started strategic planning earlier? Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes, I do. I, and I wish I had done what I said earlier, which was I didn't feel like I could go to – I didn't know major funders. Um, but I didn't feel like I could go to someone and say, hey, believe in me, trust in me, I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to build this agency before I ever filed my first lawsuit. I, mm. I, I did it the other way around, and I wish I'd had some money up front. I would have – I would have had fewer sleepless nights.
1: Very cool. Well, Joyce, thank you so much for being with us. I really enjoyed learning more about ALDF, um, but also about your journey of starting a legal nonprofit. So thanks very much.
0: Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me on.
2: Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The views expressed by the participants are their
1: own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.